Space calling. You're listening to Wild Weasel, a podcast about wargaming news, wargaming ideas, and wargaming people. I'm Bruce Garrick, your host and electronic warfare technician. Welcome to episode 3 of Wild Weasel, or if you've been here before, then welcome back. I'm back on a more reasonable schedule, which is my monthly goal, but don't be surprised if episodes show up sooner than that. I've had some time to play a few games, and have some thoughts on them. Someone also suggested that I do a list of best solitaire games, and that's a great idea, but I'm having a bit of a hard time narrowing that list down, which actually surprised me. So I'm going to save that for the next episode. Please continue to make suggestions for things you'd like to see on the show. The whole thing is a work in progress, really. But I like its progress so far, and hope you do too. First, the news. Today's news will continue to run down the list of smaller game companies, and then circle back around and give you some updates on some of the larger players. But first the real indies. So Compass Games is the publisher of the John Butterfield design, Enemy Action Ardennes, which I'm told is great, um, although I haven't had a chance to play it. Um, They also have a new game in pre-order called Fatal Alliances, colon, The Great War. Uh, This is a strategic level game of World War I, covering, really, most of the world. Um, It has three maps and 1,680 counters. So... I know what you're asking. Playing time? Well, the website says 20 plus hours, which of course is meaningless since no stated playing time is ever accurate. So maybe 20 hours for the shortest scenario? Who knows? Uh, This one is $95 plus shipping for the pre-order. Otherwise, it's listed at $134 regular price. Now, the website actually has the words now shipping under the game description, but the pre-order price appears valid. Uh, I just checked it out by putting it in a shopping cart. Um... I have to admit, I'm intrigued by the idea of World War I done on this scale, but I'm not a big fan of World in Flames, and this seems to use a similar system to that game. Anyway, you can check that out at compassgames.com. Now, White Dog Games is a company run by Michael Kennedy, um, and he seems to specialize in solitaire games, although he does have some uh, two-player games available as well. Now, the latest release from White Dog is a solitaire game, uh, about that, of the American Revolution called Don't Tread on Me. And it's uh, it's actually designed by R. Ben Madison, who um, he's known for the solitaire game Mount Builders, uh, published by Victory Point Games, as well as Death in the Trenches from Schutze Games, uh, which is a strategic World War I game that I've never played, uh, but which won a Charles S. Roberts Award. So uh, it does have some design heft behind it. Um, Don't Tread on Me uses a similar system to Dave Kershaw's Vietnam Solitaire, uh, which is also, by the way, published by White Dog Games. 
Now you can get these games uh, as box versions, folio versions, or even uh, desktop publishing versions, kind of print and play, uh, with appropriate differences in price. Um, the physical quality of White Dog games is similar to, you know, maybe slightly inferior to Victory Point games, although they do have similar, uh, you know, thick laser die cut counters. Um, to check them out, you go to whitedoggames.com. And by the way, you know, we're talking about solitaire games. If you're looking for some decent solitaire games, uh, or, or really any kind of war game, and don't mind a little arts and crafts, uh, you can check out wargamedownloads.com which is basically a repository of desktop publishing games, some of which are actually really good. Uh, in fact, two of the better games in White Dog Games inventory are designs that Dave Kershaw originally published as desktop publishing games. Um, and I found out uh, about by just downloading the, those desktop publishing versions from wargamedownloads.com for, I don't know, I think they're like $5 each or something. Um, those games were Vietnam Solitaire, um, which I actually really like, um, but unfortunately it's impossible to win, or at least for me, and uh, Solitaire Caesar. So, I mean, there, there's all sorts of stuff on wargamedownloads.com, including non-war games. Um, some of it, frankly, is terrible, um, but some of it's not. Um, I, I really just like browsing and seeing what ideas people have. Uh, it's so interesting, and, you know, you want to splurge on something that's going to cost you about uh, well, four bucks. So Bounding Fire Productions, uh, this is a publisher of Advanced Squad Leader products. And what they do is they produce very nice historical packages with a lot of scenarios, boards, and counters. Um, their most recent one is called Poland in Flames, uh, which I had to buy for obvious reasons. Um, but they have a bunch of others, including uh, Crucible of Steel, which is a Kursk Northern uh, pincer thing. Uh, these are very nice packages. Uh, they're priced like a regular module, um, but without the box. Uh, Poland and Flames is $139. Uh, that does include postage in the U.S. Um, it's $150, including postage elsewhere. Uh, I, I'm kind of a sucker for these ASL things because they go out of print so fast, you often don't even have time to figure out if they're good. You know, suddenly, poof, they're gone, and you add them to the list of all the stuff you missed and wish you had. Um, I, I know, I know. Uh, when was the last time you played ASL, Bruce? Why do you need all the stuff you may never use? Jeez, oh, you sound like my wife. No, ha, sorry, no, not really. She's actually very indulgent about all this. Uh, so, if anyone's up for a scenario of costly baptism or cockroaches against panzers, just give me a call. Um, I do have one other advanced squad leader supplement to mention, uh, and that's produced by the St. Louis ASL Club. Uh, this is called China, Burma, India, colon, the Lost Theater, and it's really a collection of articles and scenarios, um, all from the China-Burma-India Theater in 1942. Uh, it comes with a glossy 60-page magazine, 12 scenarios, and a mini-campaign uh, with an included 22-inch by 28-inch soft map. Uh, it's a really nice product, although I haven't played any of the scenarios yet, so I don't know how they are. Um, I really like this theater, and even though I'm not a big fan of Jungle uh, in ASL, that rule whole rule set, I am looking forward to playing this. Um, you can find that at jagersoftgames.com. There'll be a link on the Wild Weasel page. Mitch Land, designer of the Next War series, passed along some news on Nuts Publishing. Um, this is a company I had never heard of, but apparently is reprinting Mark Herman's Pacific War. If you don't believe me, go to nutspublishing.com and click on In the Pipeline. Yeah, me too. And this is one of those... I demand you take my money deals that you see in memes across the internet everywhere. Uh, the problem is it doesn't list a price or a timetable. 
Um, but they do have other games, uh, including a block-based modern urban warfare game called Urban Operations, uh, designed by Sébastien de Perret, uh, who was a French army officer. Uh, there's a nice picture of that on the website, uh, as well as a price of 59 euros, which appears to be a pre-order price, as the game has uh, 386 orders towards a 500-order goal. Uh, certainly unusual. Uh, that's nutspublishing.com. Now, Victory Point Games has a new solitaire game out called The Chosen Few about the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir in Korea 1950. Um, it's a smaller title with fairly simple rules. Uh, there are some interesting mechanics in there, and I love the theme. Uh, like I said, it's a simpler, smaller game. Uh, check that out at victorypointgames.com, and I'll link a demo by the uh, designer of video he made on the Wild Weasel episode page. That's sort of a um, tutorial for the game. Now, uh, I mentioned one small step before. They have, um, according to the email they sent out, No Trumpets, No Drums has gone to the printer. Uh, and there are only a few copies left at the pre-order price. So I guess they order a certain number and then discount a fixed quantity. Um, this was, as I mentioned before, an outstanding Vietnam game in its original incarnation. Uh, and I have high hopes for the reprint, although I obviously can't vouch for a product that hasn't even been printed yet. Uh, so we'll see. That's at uh, ossgamescart.com. Now, OSG, Operational Studies Group, uh, has extended their sale through March 31st, uh, so you can still get some discounts from them on their excellent catalog of Napoleonic games. Um, they really need to reprint Highway to the Kremlin, though. Uh, go to uh, napoleongames.com. And I did want to mention that GMT Games' next offering in the Next War series, uh, which is Next War Poland, has made the P500 cut. Um, I don't know when that will hit the production schedule. Um, there seem to be a lot of games that haven't made the cut, but are uh, not really slated for production yet. Uh, one uh, listener emailed in about um, Cactus Air Force, which is a solitary game about the air war for Guadalcanal. Um, that's uh, being looked forward to, not on the schedule either. So when's it going on the schedule, GMT? Huh? Um, another game from GMT that has made the cut is, uh, by Ray Farrell, and it's called Time of Crisis, which is a fast-playing game about the latter years of the Roman Empire. Um, Ray is actually in our local game club, and in fact, played Liberty or Death with me last week. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that I included his game in my rundown, especially since it has more than 500 orders, so the $44 pre-order price won't last forever. And, uh, Ray, congrats on getting your game published, or, uh, being well on the way to be published. Oh, and I also wanted to mention that I got a nice email from Mark Jessup, uh, who used to host the Rusted Dice video review series uh, that uh, many of you may have watched, uh, who now does a historical audio podcast at warsofcoalition.com. Uh, and he said that he has a game in the Legion War Games pre-order system, which I had mentioned before. Uh, that's called By Mountains and Sea, about the Soviet amphibious assault on Novorossiysk in 1943. Uh, which is a subject that I've seen covered before, uh, I think only once. Um, that was in Jack Rady's 1982 game, Black Sea, Black Death, uh, which was published by People's War Games. Um, Mark Jessup's game again, called By Mountains and Sea, is available for pre-order at legionwargames.com. And that's the news for this week. So today, I have a very special guest. I have Nick Karp, who most wargamers will almost certainly recognize as the designer of Vietnam 1965 to 1975, 
uh, an excellent uh, game from Victory Games that uh, I think really changed the way we understood what was possible in a Vietnam campaign game. And uh, also former uh, COO of uh, Shenandoah Studio, uh, designers and publishers of three fantastic games, uh, Battle of the Bulls, Drive on Moscow, and uh, Desert Fox. Nick, welcome to the show. Hi, Bruce. Hello. I have some real stumpers for you today. All right? So get ready. Okay. All right. Uh, three questions. So here's my first question. Um, you, of course, are designer of what some people are, many people call one of the best Vietnam board games ever made. If you're designing a Vietnam game, what is the one single element of that game that you think is the most important thing to get right? Well, it would depend on the, the scale of the game, uh, of course, but uh, my game was uh, strategic and certainly it at anything other than down in the jungle, uh, the interaction between military and political factors. I mean, that was what made uh, the Vietnam situation so unusual uh, and so difficult for the United States uh, and really made us refit, rethink warfare. Now, do you think that it's important, so there's the relationship between the U.S. and the South Vietnamese government, and there's also the relationship between the U.S. as a country and its, you know, attitude and its armed forces, uh, sort of the political situation. Which one of those are you speak, re referring to, or is it both? Really all of it. I mean, the what I think one of the main lessons of Vietnam uh, was that you can win every battle and still lose the war. So you have to understand what you're fighting about, which is the hearts and minds of the, the people, both uh, on the ground in Vietnam and at home. And ultimately, that's going to decide victory. Mm -hmm. Well, so that leads, leads me to a sort of question 1A, which is, you know, there, there was a lot of conflict, uh, you know, in the United States. And there was a there was a political battle being fought in the United States regarding the war. Do you think that's fair game for a board game to actually depict that rather than abstracting it into some kind of, you know, uh, national morale or political points or something like that? I mean, could you would you be comfortable with a game that showed uh, showed uh, campus protests and then you had to deploy, uh, you know, National Guard or things like that? And, uh, you know, the, the results of those protests were somehow calculated into uh, in, into uh, the political calculus. Well, I think. That would be a it, simulating those explicitly would be a different game. It might be an interesting game, but I, I think it veers too too far into politics and maybe a little too close to home in okay. this politically fraught age. Uh huh. Okay. So so you're saying that the the politics are are okay when they're abstracted, but when you make them too explicit. Uh, it's kind of like it's kind of like making the killing too explicit uh, in uh, in a war game. Uh, you you sort of the, the, the eliminating the combat factors is okay, but uh, you know having little dead uh, you know dead civilian encounters is, is is problematic. Um, I I think it would change how it was perceived. Uh, instead of a game, it would become an ideological statement. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it would be very difficult to. Uh, create something that 
most parties could ag agree was a fair portrayal of what was going on. Uh, and uh, you also would have to very carefully determine what actions were uh, are possible for the players. Mm -hmm. I mean, Kent State was an anomaly, but do you enable a player to decide uh, that you'll have an American Tiananmen Square and just shut it down? Mm -hmm. uh, and if so, how do you determine what happens as a result of that? I mm -hmm. mean, you're really just making it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, that sounds to me like games would be dangerously, dangerously approaching the area of art. Uh, and then if you did that, so, um, well, I wanted, I think that's a good segue actually into the next question because I think what you were discussing there is the idea that, you know, these things are considered games and therefore maybe not taken very seriously, uh, until they start doing things that are controversial and then they get all of this, you know, maybe unwanted attention. Um, it, I think that maybe if, you know, wargaming were, uh, more mainstream, uh, maybe people would have a little bit better, you know, more tolerance or understanding for that kind of depiction. But the question for me, question number two for you is, what do you think is the biggest obstacle to, to historical war games becoming more mainstream? They seem kind of stuck in a niche that they never really have climbed out of. Well, I, I think the kind of person who likes a historical board game is uh, an intersection of the proverbial Venn diagrams. Uh, I think you have to uh, be interested in uh, modeling. Most gamers are uh, pretty uh, introverted and interested in problem solving, also interested in history, and you have to have uh, time to spare. And it's a, a little ironic that computers have made games more accessible by uh, enforcing rules and handling a lot of record keeping and so on, but they've also introduced great competition uh, that in many cases is flashier. Uh, the ability to uh, uh, play first-person shooters and uh, multiplayer uh, role-playing games uh, and wonderful graphic depictions uh, has progressed very rapidly, and that's powerful competition, particularly among the the younger audience. Mm -hmm. So, uh, we're... It's a limited amount of glamour that you can bring to what you and I think of as a traditional board game, which is uh, quite abstract. Right. So, so we're we're essentially playing our own version of jacks and marbles while everyone else is uh, while everyone else is having virtual reality fun. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I had to be persuaded of uh, at Shenandoah uh, was the importance of uh, graphic representations. I mean, I personally would have been uh, happy with having the game work, mm -hmm. having it be a great game, mm -hmm. uh, but really a lot of the, most of the comments and attention it got was due to Pat Ward's wonderful art mm -hmm. and uh, the way he integrated it into play. And, and ultimately, I came to love it. Uh, but uh, I guess you get players at different spectrums there, mm -hmm. and pleasing them all is uh, is difficult. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess that's, um, you know, if, if you mentioned Shenandoah, I mean, I think that, 
the uh, the way that people experience these things is, is you know primarily visual, um, and you you're 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 describing a whole bunch of Venn diagrams that all intersect at a place where uh, where I think that those people also don't necessarily um, necessarily value that that that's not part of the Venn diagram, right? I mean, you're just saying that you would have been glad without uh, w- without having any of that stuff now. Um, that brings up a, a kind of ancillary point. So this is question two A. I didn't say even question, but uh, I just want to. There's a game out that's called uh, Tigers on the Hunt, uh, which is a um, which is sort of a, an advanced squad leader like game. It has everything. It has you know there's a rally phase and there's a, you know a fire phase. And they've changed some of the names so it's not overtly ASL. But I mean clearly there. I mean there's an advanced phase. I mean you can advance a hex. I mean it's just it's people are clearly they're playing ASL, um, and. The game itself, I mean, I don't know that, I haven't played it enough to determine whether there are many technical issues, but it looks like, you know, if you had made this game in 1995, it would be indistinguishable from today, and the, the uh, somebody even commented that the output looks like a debug screen, right? It's like, you know, you know, 3, 6, uh, you know, airborne squad is broken, you know, asterisk, 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 um, and... Uh, you know, I, I think that is that the um, is that the level of game that uh, we're stuck with if people are going to make uh, make complicated games. What is it so that's so difficult about about good art design? I mean, you you could have technic. It seems like technical skill in programming seems to be more accessible than than really innovative. You know, good artists. Is that just because art is better than everything? Design is hard, and interesting games tend to have unusual models and concepts behind them and thus require original metaphors and figuring out how to communicate those quickly and easily is hard. I mean, a game isn't like uh, a spreadsheet or a program that you have to learn. So if you can't pick it up quickly and immediately be gratified, you'll walk away to the, the next choice. Mm-hmm. At the same time, a game has to communicate a lot of information effectively. Mm-hmm. And getting that right is really hard. Yeah. I mean, we had a great team at Shenandoah that managed to do it. They really cared about it. They understood. They played the games. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it takes a lot of time yeah. and producing new games of different types requires doing that again and again and again mm-hmm. and you have to and if you use that same metaphor too many times people start feeling it's derivative so it's almost like you have to invent new metaphors every single time out of the box uh, it's very that's a very challenging thing I I, um, I I definitely understand I definitely understand that problem it's almost like there's the there's the semiology of gaming that uh, that you have to uh, reinvent each time uh which i think is is really a tall order well let's let's uh, let's have a, a, a more uh, question number three is a little more upbeat so let's how about this so let's say somebody just walks in and says nick i hear you're this great designer um i want you to make me a board game and i want you to design a board game it can have as many rules as you want there's not a limitation it can have any mechanics you want that's not a limitation if you want to have the greatest physical you know, components you want. That's not a limitation. Do anything you want. But you need to pick right now which time period you're going to choose to depict. 
Which mm-hmm. one? If you if you somebody decided that they were going to put you on the spot and you can design, you can come back and design any game you want. What's it going to be? Well, I think I'm going to uh, step in it and con- contradict uh, part of my answer to the mm-hmm. first question. Uh huh. I'd love to do something on the modern Middle East. It's a situation that virtually my entire adult life has been in the news, Mm -hmm. has been challenging, opaque, mystifying. And I'd love to understand it. And building a model about something, building a game about something, really forces you to do your homework and test different hypotheses, and build something that is at least internally consistent. And uh, I don't know if I could succeed in that. I, it's certainly an area where I, uh, I know that not everybody would agree that any model is, is, is fair mm-hmm. uh, to all the, the parties. Uh, but I think it would be challenging and fun and Perhaps uh, educational for others as well as ah, myself. You said the you said the e word, educational. So uh, that's you know that's interesting. I think that every uh, the, yes, you definitely did uh, did venture. You couldn't you couldn't make a game uh, about that topic uh, without uh, introducing the you know a lot of politics, unless it was just a straight up kind of you know this tank is fighting you know that gorilla or something like that right i mean you have to you have to introduce some kind of political model into the game well it would really have to be at least two and probably more games where mm-hmm. each side had its own perception of the rules and they were different than the other sides hmm uh, interesting the uh, that actually sounds like a pretty cool idea yeah i'm not sure how it would work in practice well I'll start thinking but have uh, have each Role, even figuring out who the players would be, it'd be uh, uh, an interesting political statement and decision. Yeah. Uh, but uh, having them all playing different games might very well be the best way to replicate what's actually going on. Right. Well, that's the ultimate in asymmetry. So I think, guess you know, asymmetry is the buzzword. Has been a buzzword for a while in gaming, but now you've got asymmetry where you don't even know what what your symmetry is. You just you sort of sit down and then you have to figure out which which rule set you're using and while you're playing the game. Very yeah. interesting. Wow. Okay, well, well, I'll work on getting that guy uh, with a million bucks, maybe. So we'll find out where he is, and, and we'll, we'll pitch that idea. Sounds like a plan. Excellent. Nick, thank you so much for joining me on Wild Weasel. It's been a pleasure. Good fun. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you. As I said in the news segment, I got a chance to play Harold Buchanan's Liberty or Death last week, which is the latest release in the coin series of games that takes this system back to the American Revolution. Uh, But before I tell you what I thought of it, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about a comment that I saw from someone, um, you know, on the internets, who said that he was, quote, done with the coin series, close quote, because I guess there were just so many games using the system now. And, you know, while people are absolutely free to play or not play any system they choose, um, don't begrudge them that, I wanted to say something about COIN for those people who might not have had the chance to experience all the games in this series, 
or maybe looking at it as, you know, just a set of reskin sequels with different themes. So, um, by way of history, I started with the coin series by playing Andy and Abyss, and I've played each of the new games in the series as they've come out, with the exception of Cuba Libre, which I bought on release, um, came out about, uh, actually, exactly the same time as A Distant Plane, but I actually didn't get to play it until recently. And I was so taken with the coin system and its use in Andy and Abyss that I wrote a pretty effusive article about it, uh, just about the concept itself, really, which I've linked on the Wild Weasel episode number three page. But I had no idea just how versatile the system was going to be and how small tweaks to the system could make each game a really distinct and memorable experience. So I wanted to talk about uh, a bit about what I find distinctive about each of these designs because, well, you know, we're all very good at worshipping the altar of the new in gaming. I think we sometimes neglect going back into the wargaming scripture to see what has been written there already. So now, asymmetry is a buzzword in gaming, as Nick and I discussed just earlier in the interview, and has been for a long time. Uh, But not just in wargaming, or really even in board gaming. I mean, Video gaming made asymmetric factions fashionable way back in the 1990s with games like Command & Conquer and StarCraft. And giving players different choices and then different tools to make them has been around for a long time. Uh, Different goals for different sides are things that are, I think, more common in wargaming because historical situations call for different uh, results. Uh, But even I wasn't prepared for how the differing political objectives in the Colombian Civil War, uh, in Indian Abyssins, we're talking about that, could turn into these diverging victory conditions uh, for the different sides. And, you know, the way that the sides actually interacted with each other was very different depending on which one you're talking about. So, you know, while the government and the FARC were busy worrying about popular support, there was this AUC faction that was really just essentially trying to become the second most powerful force in the country. And then, of course, the drug cartels were just trying to stay out of everyone's way, ship drugs, and make money. So it was at that point that I realized that you could have not only four different sides, but four sides that had different relationships to each faction. And, you know, of course, sure, you know, diplomacy did that a long time ago, but I think this does it in a different way. So a distant plane came out, and that changed the geometry by introducing what I'd call uh, team factions, Uh, That was in the form of the government and the coalition. And then making their objectives this constant tug of war, kind of like, uh, you know, a wide receiver in football who doesn't care if his team wins as long as he's caught a certain number of touchdown passes. So, and then instead of an opposing team, uh, the other two factions in a distant plane were this nihilistic anti-faction. And then a faction that was really a middleman who could work with basically anybody. Uh, So then just with the introduction of a couple special new operations, um or new special operations, I should say, like surge and airstrike, uh, as well as a safe area in the form of Pakistan, the game had this entirely different feel. Um, And the great thing was that with all these games, I could choose coin gameplay and not only vary the historical theme, but also choose the particular kinds of relationships that I wanted the factions to have, which is a great way to tailor your game to the personalities who are playing. Um, I love this aspect of coin and how the play styles of people I know well uh, have to accommodate a unique set of game relationships in each game. So, uh, Cuba Libre, that's an interesting third volume, uh, because instead of going the deluxe sequel route, um, as I call it, it repackaged the coin gameplay entirely into this small space uh, with a faction that was existentially threatened, and then two existential threats to that faction, and then 
a morally bereft business faction that was just in it for the money. Um, and this turned, you know, a distant plains, what I guess would call nation building into flat out national destruction um, or destruction and rebirth, I guess, depending on your political perspective. And when you combine that with the limited space, you get this absolutely vicious close quarters fight that feels completely different from the previous two games. Um, I think this has got to be the most intense coin volume of the five, just for the amount of conflict per unit time. Um, you also have factions that peak at different times, and this means players are pushing at each other uh, to either push things forward or slow things down. And this is kind of a tension of tempo. Uh, that's another thing that this compact game space magnifies. So uh, I think Cuba Libre might be the uh, hidden gem in the whole bunch, really. So then Fire in the Lake. Uh, this was the deluxe sequel in my mind, and boy, was it deluxe. Um, I'm biased because I have a strong historical interest in the Vietnam War, and I think this interest is what made me so completely swept up in the gameplay, and then a little bit unsettled by the victory conditions. Um, this is the most straightforwardly team versus team dynamic of the four volumes up to that point, and the large map and the long gameplay, um, long gameplay or long play time, they fit the involved uh, historical theming very well. Um, I don't like to use epic as a, an adjective, but if you're going to use it for the coin series, it fits here. Um, so along the same lines, Fire in the Lake uh, introduced conventional warfare in a way that I think is perfect for the theme, yet doesn't upset the mechanics by introducing a bunch of additional steps. Um, it's a wonderful gameplay experience, just swimming in theme and history uh, until the end game. So for me, this is where the gaminess of victory conditions, um, I guess, broke the suspension of disbelief uh, in the abstraction of the gameplay. So. While the U.S. pulling out to deny Arvin enough control to win the game might have a historical parallel, it feels incredibly anti-thematic. And I even had a game in which my ally refused to make uh, a bunch of gameplay contortions to deny me a victory that I was about to win um, for these reasons. I mean, he rebelled, I think, equally. Actually, he told me he rebelled equally against the gaminess the move uh, would represent and the degree to which it would throw the game to the NVA or VC. And it just did not feel like it fit the narrative. So um, I wish there were a way to address this. Maybe a clever modder can come up with one. Um, but for now, it's the game that I, I like most in theory, but I think that I'm sort of least satisfied with in the end in practice. Um, which brings me to Liberty or Death, Volume 5. So uh, I have to admit I was a bit skeptical about the applicability of coin to the American Revolution. Um, you know, gorillas in, in the... 1800 or 1700s 18th century that's kind of weird um but then some uh, historical reading uh, convinced me that i had learned a very sanitized history of the uh, american revolutionary war uh, but even then i wasn't sure how you could make a coin game out of a conflict where one of the sides wasn't even playing for the first part of the game i mean that's the french obviously um i guess i didn't realize what a good game designer with a really excellent grasp of the history could accomplish and um, Harold Buchanan has made one of the most asymmetrical coin games yet um, that represents the different factions as distinctly as I could imagine. Uh, but it makes a few clean but very significant changes to the mechanics that basically make the game feel like 
the whole coin system was designed specifically for this title. Uh, I think that's a huge accomplishment. Uh, I'm particularly impressed by the addition of dice to the combat system, and, this, and the way that it was done, I think, is beautiful, um, as well as the way that the West Indies create this separate conflict space for two players that you know extends the historical and narrative scope of the game because it takes those two players and sort of moves them, gives them the separate, uh, separate conflict space um, that... It takes it out of the sort of general relationship of the four of the four factions. Um, so I do have some issues. I think the permanence of the casualty tracking condition uh, makes it hard to catch up from a big deficit. But I'll reserve judgment on that until I've had a chance to test it a bunch of times. Um, but if I got to say, if I enjoy those replays as much as I enjoyed my first gameplay uh, of this game, the, the game will definitely have more than repaid its investment. So... Um, that's five very different games. And uh, so I guess what I'm saying is that if you're tired of coin, I hope it isn't because you're just tired of hearing about coin or because you assume it's all one system with some different box covers and different colored tokens. Um, there are, there are five very different and very well-designed game experiences here. Um, now I'm currently playtesting the first two player coin game, uh, which is Brian Train's Colonial Twilight. And I can't wait to see what Falling Sky and Pendragon add to the experience. Uh, in a way, I feel like, um, I don't know, maybe the, the incredible number of good games being designed and published now makes us look at things in a, in a more cynical way. I think our standards are just so high. Um, it's different. I think it'd be different uh, if we still lived in the late 80s or early 90s when uh, game companies were going out of business left and right and you couldn't find new games or opponents very easily. Uh, you're sort of uh, grateful for what you had. So, um, if you're done playing coin games because you're just burned out on the system, that's fair enough and completely understandable. Um, but I hope you got a lot of good gaming done in the meantime. And if you are just sort of hearing about coin and figuring that it's just a bunch of more of the same, um, please dive in and uh, prove yourself wrong. And that's it for another episode. Next time, we'll have more top 10 lists or top five lists some kind of lists um see you then thanks for listening this has been wild weasel number three